0: Hi everyone, it's Indigo. Over the next few weeks, we're on summer vacation at Prio, so you'll be hearing some reposted episodes like this one. I picked these episodes to repost because they didn't get the most attention the first time around, but I think they're really interesting. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichhager, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Justice after a conflict is often part of peace building and can be an important part of addressing victims' experiences. These post-conflict processes are called transitional justice and are well-studied. But during conflict justice is less understood. When governments use trials truth commissions, exiles, and other tools to address crimes, even while violence is ongoing, what does it do to both the conflict itself and the people involved? At Prio, the project All is Fair in Law and War, Judicial Behavior in Conflict-Affected Societies sets out to investigate these themes using the case studies of Colombia, Nepal, and Uganda. Today, I'm speaking with three experts about the Uganda case. Lino Ower ogora is the founder of the Foundation for Justice and Development Initiatives, a national NGO based in Uganda. He's also a peace-building, human rights, and transitional justice practitioner who's worked with conflict-affected communities in northern Uganda since 2006. Nobert Takan is a peacebuilding practitioner and social researcher with immense field experience in Uganda. Cyan Loyal is an associate professor of political science and international affairs at the Pennsylvania State University. She's also a Global Fellow at Prio. Her research examines judicial processes used during and after armed conflict. Welcome to the podcast, Cyan, Lino, and Nobert. Really happy to have you all here, and we're going to be talking about the project All is Fair in Law and War, Judicial Behavior in Conflict-Affected Societies. Um, An excellent project title, I must say. Um, and you've all had different roles and connections with this project, but we'll just start with you, Cyan. Um, can you start by explaining the impetus for the project? Why was this important? Because it's about investigating justice during conflict, um, not just after conflict, but during conflict. And why, why was that interesting for you?
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks for the question, Indigo, and thanks so much for for having us on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here today and to present the the work that that we've been doing for for a couple of years now. Um, So the the impetus for the project really started all the way back in 2008, where Helga Binningsbow and Scott Gates and I um, were working on a project that looked at transitional justice or post-conflict justice. And one of the things that we found in the course of collecting um, data for that project was that there were a number of different countries and conflict settings that were using very similar institutions to transitional justice while armed conflict was ongoing. So you can think about things like amnesty offers that aren't just given as part of peace agreements or in the post-conflict period, but are actually given while the violence is still ongoing. Or things like military tribunals or inquests that become a really important part of, of the conflict itself. And so we started to ask the question about the about the conditions under which governments were likely to use these different justice institutions while violence was ongoing, but also more importantly, the impact that those judicial institutions were going to have on either the conflict itself or the post-conflict period.
0: Okay, so this sounds very complex and, and now we're going to bring it a bit down to earth with the case, one of the cases um, that, that you looked at. Uganda, Colombia, Nepal. Now we're only talking about Uganda today to not get too crazy with, uh, with all the information that we could get into. But um, I'm going to throw a question to you now, Lino. You are the founder of the Foundation for Justice and Development Initiative. And just to orient the listeners a little bit, can you first tell us a bit about the background in Uganda and specifically about the uh, Lord's Resistance Army, since this is kind of important when we're talking about the case of Uganda?
2: Yeah, thank you so much. It's uh, been, I think, uh, over a decade now since uh, the conflict in Northern Uganda ended between the Lord's Resistance Army and uh, the government of Uganda. And uh, there has been a lot of progress made in returning Northern Uganda to normal. And if you go to Northern Uganda today, you may not actually realize that there was a conflict there. But actually, Northern Uganda was the scene of a conflict that lasted for over two decades from around uh, 1986 to around 2006, and this conflict was fought primarily between the Lord's Resistance Army and uh, the and the government of Uganda, and uh, it was characterized by the commission of various human rights violations and various uh, atrocities against the civilian populations. There was an abduction of over 66,000 children, and. Uh, uh, several hundred thousand civilians were massacred, either in IDP camps where they had been confined and displaced by the government. And um, several others also died of disease and hunger and other causes as a result of, uh, of the conflict. And the conflict displaced almost 1.8 million people. So that has been really, uh, whatever, a very dark history in the, in the past of northern Uganda. And uh, as a result, just to connect back to this project, just like uh, Sian mentioned, there were a number of justice options that were introduced and Amnesty was one of them, which was used to bring back people from the conflict and to, and to encourage former com- sorry, combatants of the Lord's Resistance Army to abandon rebellion and to come back and resettle in the communities. So the recovery process of northern Uganda is still ongoing. It's going to take very many years, but at least uh, there has been some progress. There's now relative peace. People have returned to their communities and uh, moving on with their lives and uh, having economic opportunities, but the impacts are still felt up to this day. Thank you.
0: So, I mean, obviously you have touched a bit on the fact that that there are processes ongoing, but how do you see those transitional justice processes playing a role in society, maybe for just for normal people? I mean, do people relate to these processes? Uh, is it something that is covered a lot in the media? Um, is it a process that people believe in? Um, what do you see on the ground there?
2: Yeah, it's, it's mixed because transitional justice held a lot of promise for people in Northern Uganda, especially around 2008 when we had the Juba Peace Talks taking place between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda, transitional justice was introduced as one of those fancy romantic concepts that could uh, kind of solve the problems of the people in northern Uganda. It was over-marketed, it was overhyped. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, many of these processes have not been able to deliver the promises that they held for the people. If you look at, for example, uh, the transitional justice uh, policy that is currently being developed in Uganda, uh, Uganda is one of the only countries that has a transitional justice policy. If you look at that policy, it has taken over 10 years to develop, and up to now, there is no sign that it's still going to be implemented because the draft form took almost 10 years to finalise and then when it was finished, it is still in a situation where it has to be operationalized. So it's just approved by Cabinet, but not yet actually a law in Uganda that can actually be used. If you look at the International Crimes Division, for example, which was set up to provide accountability options uh, for for, uh, for and for human rights violators, you find that in Uganda, we have only one person who is currently under trial, and that is Thomas Koyelo. We don't have any, any government officials who are on trial. So that is why I say that transitional justice has not fulfilled the promise that it, it had many decades ago, that people looked at and felt like this is going to completely solve our problems. If you look at amnesty, for example, which was a justice mechanism during the conflict, you'll find that very many ex-combatants at the moment are beginning to question why they were given amnesty in the first place. They tell themselves that we were abducted. Look here, guys. We shouldn't be pardoned. We are the ones... Sorry, the government is the one supposed to ask us to forgive them for not protecting us. But now... Because we were abducted against our will, we are being granted a pardon or forgiveness. Forgiveness for what? So amnesty is being questioned at the moment. If you look at transitional justice mechanisms like reparations, these have completely not taken place. We have had government programs that have been uh, touted as reparations programs, but actually they have not reached the real primary victims who have suffered. So for me, TJ has really... Uh, had some momentum, there have been some developments, we have a policy, but it has also been fraught with a lot of disappointment, especially on the side of the victims. Thank you.
0: So, Nobert, you are a researcher and you look at transitional justice, and in a recent blog post, you were a bit optimistic, but there's also some of this, this tension that Lino has been talking about, and so you write... Although active conflict in northern Uganda and other parts of the country may have long ended, justice has no time limit. And you also wrote, By approving a national transitional justice policy by the cabinet in June 2019, the government appeared set to pursue a long-awaited transitional justice process after the country's violent past, although the approval of the policy came after almost 10 years since its first draft. So, I guess Lino has gotten into this a little bit, but what are your thoughts on this? What effect is this delay having on individuals in greater trust in that process and in the government?
3: Well, thank you. Uh, I'll just pick up from where Lino Lino, uh, stopped. Yeah, Uganda is uh, at a very crucial stage, given that uh, it's uh, almost a decade since the conflict ended, but... uh, the, the, the real process the, the real transitional processes have not been really uh, fruitful or achieved the purposes that they were supposed to achieve So in June 2019 when the cabinet approved the, the, the policy uh, it, there was a, re- a renewed hope country and um, victims and uh, and people who are interested in transitional justice felt like well we, we have something coming up. And uh, there was a real promise from the government. But then it's almost uh, three years and nothing is uh, being done. Well, there are discussions uh, from the government, but this discussion, this discussion really lack they lack merit and the momentum is really low. So from the perspective of victims, I have spoken to many people since then and there are two things that are clear. One is that there is uh, fatigue, like real, real immense fatigue among victims, that the, the, the transitional justice processes are not going to happen soon. They, they 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 do not believe that the government is going to to embark on these processes or or start doing um, activities that aims at uh, you know rehabilitating the the the, the places that suffered the war and the people who suffered the consequences of the war. So also generally, it appears that the trust that the people put in government uh, to, to to deliver justice or to, to carry out justice processes has significantly reduced. Because if you look at the discussions in maybe in, in recent years, the discussion is uh, tilting towards a favor to the informal justice systems well the TJ the policy in uganda recognizes this uh the informal justice processes has important and has something that the government intends to to, to use uh to to kind of uh rehabilitate and uh encourage healing in in, uh, in the war devastated areas but the, the prim- we all understand that the primary responsibility should be on the informal justice system because the, the, I mean, on the formal justice system because the informal justice systems are not well studied and uh, the, the the basis of carrying out these processes is a bit not clear. So um, the delay also, in my view, has somebody who has interacted with victims poses a big risk of condoning a culture that encourages impunity. And I've written about this several times, that, look, if you have uh, accountability not happening several years after conflict, you risk having a population that, a population that, I don't know how to, the, the best word to put it, but you risk not dealing with impunity the way it should be. Because if you look at the current trend in Uganda, the political trend, you have you have aspects of the society that show that impunity is not about to end. See, so that's a big threat. And also, what is now uh, almost worse than the cult of impunity, and this I think should be taken seriously, is a building of anger among victims. Well, if you if you went to northern Uganda, you find that victims are really, really so angry. We have different categories of victims. We have children who were born while their parents were in captivity. And these ones are, I think, one of the groups that are suffering most because, first of all, they lack identity. And in the process of giving national identity cards, these people miss out because they do not have a father or they do not have the evidence that show that they are Ugandans or not. We also have those who were born in captivity, and they are now languishing in, in other countries like Southern Sudan, Central African Republic, and maybe DRC, and this has also been documented. Um, so, because there's another category that is very, very bitter. That, that is the women. You know, in in any conflict, the women suffer the most, and um, the burden of this conflict is always felt deep in their hearts and they look at this as something that comes down to to them because the children who are languishing, you know, in the diaspora are their children. Those ones in the bush are also their children. They were forced to live, you know, their inhuman lives and, and, you know, undergo several atrocities, which they see as being forgotten or really taken for granted. And this is really building anger in the communities and among victims in Uganda. And when we talk about Uganda, normally people like talking about the LRA only. The same things that we have talked about that we continue to talk about is happening in, in other regions, like the Rwenzori region. Recently, there was a documentation by Foundation for Justice and Development Initiatives and uh, Rwenzori Forum for Peace and Justice that further highlights these things, that the victims want answers. And where do the answers come from is a big question. So these are the things that really we need to to look at critically. Of course, there are setbacks. The government will always say uh, we lack proper documentation. We do not have the statistics. We do not have what to rely on, I mean, to carry out these processes. For example, there is no guideline of the informal justice processes. How do they are supposed to, 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 to take place? They also uh, rely on things like the funding gap. They do not have the money to to not undertake these processes. But generally, it all goes down to the political will. The political will and the political environment in Uganda is not right. I mean, it's not fertile enough for transitional justice to you know to flourish. Yeah. So those are some of the of the views that I I feel should really really really.
0: Be uh, taken into account. Thank you, thank you, Nobert. Um, Sayan, I see that you want to add a comment, and I was going to see if you if you wanted to add something uh, at this point.
1: Well, well, I did want to want to jump in both to to what Lino and Nobert were saying. I mean, particularly picking up on Nobert's point about lack of political will. So, you know, one of the things that that I encounter in Uganda that that is different in some ways from some of the other cases is the the degree to which um, the early transitional justice initiatives, particularly around the Juba peace process, were driven very heavily from the international community. Um, And a reminder that um, Uganda has not had a political transition. So often when we talk about... um, Either, either during conflict justice or transitional justice, we we have some sort of very concrete end to a conflict or concrete political transition. And while the conflict has ended in, in Northern Uganda, the, the Lord's Resistance Army is still at large and, and has kind of moved on. And so we don't have that that kind of clear break with the past that often facilitates these conversations. Um, and then even thinking about political will, Lino mentioned that, that there um, that the government of Uganda bears culpability for, for some of the crimes that were experienced in, in probably three categories, right? So, the, the first would be the inability of the Ugandan government to protect its citizens in the north from the LRA attacks, particularly the, the high number of abductions, particularly children. Then, um, the forcing of citizens in northern Uganda into IDP camps, ostensibly for their protection, but into a system um, that both was um, was very devastating to to the health of the people that were put into the IDP camps as well as just cultural and land institutions. Um, And then there are accusations of the government committing atrocities themselves, right? So, So war crimes and atrocities against civilians. And so when we think about political will, we can also start to think about whether or not the government doesn't want to expose itself to culpability for some of these crimes as part of a transitional justice process.
0: Yeah, and I actually also wanted to ask you, um, based on the things that Nobert said, in your report you write that transitional justice is an important tool for dealing with violence, violence since addressing grievances can decrease the ability of rebel groups to mobilize uh, new participants and can reduce local support for violent activities, including the resumption of new armed conflicts. But I'm wondering if transitional justice kind of isn't done properly or or quickly enough, can it then... Backfire? Do you think that there is concern in this case or other cases um, that if it's not done properly, that actually it, it it will just be backsliding again into armed conflict?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I want to leave that question for for Nobert and Lino because Nobert, it's it's certainly something that you found particularly among a number of um, the people that you interviewed um, who had re- ex combatants who had received amnesty. Who were not integrating well back into society, um, and I, I think that that's that's a population that we always need to be concerned about. I don't know, Nobert or Lino, if you wanted to speak to that directly.
3: In this project, we talked to quite a number of um, of uh, former former LRA combatants and um, the, the former abductees in the LRA, and I think this group is particular particularly. Um, one that is uh that is uh I don't know the best word to describe it but it's the one of interest and if you look at how they feel about the government how they feel about how the government has handled their issues or the issues of uh, their rehabilitation into the society then you, you you feel concerned because you have some of them saying we have not received you know the treatment that was promised we only came back with cards and this they mean the amnesty cards so they say um they are living in the communities and under under uh inhuman condition i mean in conditions where they, they they feel like it was better to remain in the bush than to be at home this is this is a big threat so that means we are living in a time bomb that if there is an opportunity to go back to the bush, some of these people could not think twice. You see, so I think traditional justice processes is something that must be taken expeditiously and must be taken with great, great interest from especially um, the political, I mean, the government in particular. And if it is taken for granted, I mean, if it, is le- if it is left for all these years and more, more and more, the anger keeps boiling up and the, you know, the discontent keeps boiling up, which is really what we don't want. In Actually, there is a saying that if you leave a wound for too long without treating it, it becomes a dollar. A dollar means chronic. See, so that is not what we want to deal with. I'll let Lino uh, take on from here.
2: I think I'll just supplement uh no but by saying that yes if not handled well they could backfire and uh, we already have evidence of this and case, st- and case scenarios we don't even need to look far one of them are government development programs that have been marketed as reparations for example in northern Uganda programs are focused instead on constructing hardware that is roads and focus less on software things that communities felt were significant for rebuilding the social fabric so these programs have already backfired many communities do not identify with them because basically they have not met their needs basically they have not uh whatever targeted a very important component of peace building and of uh, reconciling communities, of of, uh, whatever, of healing wounds that are still in people's hearts. These programs have just focused on hardware, like constructing roads, putting in place water and sanitation facilities, which are, yes, important, but they've ignored the software. For example, if you look at the Peace Recovery and Development Plan program, it came to be referred to as a program that was missing the p eh, the missing p in the peace and recovery and development program and p was the peace so there is already evidence of the backfiring so we don't even need to look far. and uh, so if there are to be more programs in future definitely if they are not handled well then we are going to see more of the backfiring and a lot of the frustration on the side of the victims yeah
0: very interesting. Thank you both. So just wrapping up here, and I always tell people this is the million-dollar question, but we're going to talk about policy recommendations, if you have them. And Cyan, I'll let you go first, but Lino and Nober, if you want to add something uh, afterward, please do. So yeah, Cyan, based on your findings so far, um, what kind of policy recommendations do you have? I would say both for local governments and for international actors, because you do address that the international community is is usually really really important in these transitional justice processes, and is during conflict justice a viable and advisable option more widely? Do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think the the most important policy recommendation, or or I'd really even say policy lesson that um, that we that we have found for the international community is to to think about the importance of accountability during conflict as and that behavior as really being central to a lot of the outcomes in the post-conflict period. Um, so both Lino and Nobert touched upon the Amnesty Act. There's been a number of other ways in which the Ugandan government did not pursue accountability while the conflict was was ongoing. And that has lasting implications um, for, for, for people's trust um, and engagement with the government now that the conflict is ended. And we find that in all of the other cases that we've worked on. So in places like Turkey, Northern Ireland, Colombia, the way in which the government pursued justice while the conf- or did not pursue justice while the conflict was ongoing impacts the transitional justice options in the post-conflict period. I think it's quite common for the international community to kind of start from when the conflict or political transition has ended and move forward when thinking about different justice and rule of law options. But going back to really understanding how the judicial institution was used and often misused while the conflict was ongoing is central for developing the policies that are needed to kind of move forward in the post-conflict period. So transitional justice is influenced by the way in which the judiciary uh, was used while the conflict was ongoing. In terms of policy recommendations, the, the fix for that, if there is, um, and this is the million dollar fix, if that was the million dollar question, um, it is rebuilding trust and transparency, particularly in the judiciary and rule of law institutions. And that's not easy to do, but that's also distinct from a national transitional justice plan, right? That That's a different type of policy interventions and initiatives, but really thinking about how people engage with the concept of rule of law in general, because of the way that it was often misused during the conflict is essential for understanding how to move forward.
2: Yeah, just really, I agree with all what Sienna said, and uh, just to add, I would say that we've had so many studies and so many, uh, let me say, I don't know, assessments and everything, and they've all come up with policy recommendations. And uh, we've been speaking policy, policy, policy recommendations for years, and uh, if if, if really there was the political will to implement these recommendations, then it should have happened years ago. It should have happened yesterday, not even today. So we what we need now is really action on the part of the government. This should have happened like yesterday, not even today. So that's just what I want to add. I just want to add that uh, we have uh, a lot of policy recommendations, but uh, implementation, unfortunately, has been so slow. And uh, I think for me, what a uh, reason for this is the lack of political will. And so really what we need to look at is how to... Just for that political will to really get the government to have to do this or the, the different duty bearers that have to actually take action, to actually act. Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Lino. I, I like that call to action and it's a it's an excellent point. And uh, yeah, thank you all so much for joining me on the podcast today. I um, really appreciate it and I hope that people will, will go and actually um, read the, the reports that will be coming soon. Thank you.
1: And Indigo, just as a quick pitch, we do have a policy brief that's coming out on the Prio website, hopefully within the next week or two, so people will be able to reference that directly.
0: Excellent. I will put a link to that. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit Prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me indigo Tri Hagger music by Martin Adam